I am Richard Wolfie Wolf, and this is Wolf in Tune. Before I introduce our guest for this episode, I want to just make a couple of comments on the situation we find ourselves in. So when I recorded this episode, East Forest, this was uh, quite some weeks away before the coronavirus really took off. And so we didn't talk about it at that time. And since then, I've been getting uh, quite a few distress emails, Facebook messages, Instagram messages from former students and um, people that just find me on the internet from the book, etc. And so I think it's important to um, make a few points. One thing that uh, keeps getting repeated is that we're in an unprecedented time. And that's true for us on a personal level. Um, none of us have been through anything exactly like this. But if you look at a bigger perspective, especially from the point of view of historians, the truth is that Homo sapiens have been struggling with pathogens that have plagued us for millennia, whether you're talking about the Black Death or smallpox, polio, AIDS, etc. This is a recurrent theme in our history. And this is probably why we have such a visceral reaction. It's built into our evolutionary DNA that we have this invisible threat, sort of Democles, that from time to time hangs over our heads and then is dropped on millions of people in our populations. So we've been through this before as a species, as Yuval Harari, the great historian who wrote Sapiens and Homo Deus, and other books has said that we are well acquainted with this enemy and we have a good history actually of coming together globally to fight this enemy and to ward off this plague. He talks about how it took the whole world finally to initiate a smallpox vaccine which finally eradicated smallpox in 1970. Speaking of the big picture and keeping things in perspective, I think this is one of the reasons it's so important to practice the contemplative practices that we do. Because one of the biggest purposes of these practices is to help us not be so immersed and entangled in the details of difficult situations or any kind of situation, but to be able to step back, to slow down, to pause to create space, to create a critical distance between ourselves and our experience of what's happening. The essence of mindfulness is to be able to observe, to witness or to listen to what is happening right now, right here, without getting captivated by it, enraptured by it, and to be able to calmly with clarity and hopefully sometimes with self-compassion or just general compassion to look at situations and calibrate our response to them. And this is a training and this is a point where our training comes into play because we've been conditioning ourselves in a physical way, conditioning our hearts, our minds and our bodies at the same time. To be with reality as it is, 
and just to coexist with it. So in that sense, we can look at our situation and do what we need to do and take care of what we need to take care of, but without tying ourselves into knots that are unnecessary. And it's the simple conditioning of bringing awareness to your breathing or to what is happening in your body or to the fact that you're listening to sound or perceiving in some other way, engaging in that miraculous process of conscious perception. And that conditions us, that prepares us for any situation, especially for situations that come with the stresses and fears that we are confronting today. So the uncertainty and confusion, insecurity, that being confronted with an epidemic invariably presents to us are just natural emotions. I mean, if we don't know the nature of what we're dealing with, that's intrinsic uncertainty. But being okay with uncertainty, to a reasonable extent, is part of our training. Because uncertainty is pretty much the currency of the land. It's always with us. We never know. We can never be certain. And uncertainty and insecurity, as Alan Watts said, is the beginning of wisdom. There is really no security in a material sense, in a physical sense, because everything is always changing. There's nothing to cling to. There's nothing to hang on to. It's like Bob Dylan said in his song, It's All Right, Ma, I got nothing, not nothing to live up to. Well, there is nothing to attach yourself to because that's going to be moving and changing. As are you going to be moving and changing. And one more observation. This epidemic and the campaign to turn it back is showing more and more people how we are all interconnected, how we are all interdependent. And that even though we have to separate ourselves from each other, that's the major strategy, we are in the end inseparable from each other. And as Yuval Harari says, we need a global strategy, a global trust and cooperation in order to meet the challenge that's going to be coming around the corner the next time. And there is also hope that more and more people are waking up to the fact that we need to listen to scientists, that we need to share our knowledge and information so that we can overcome the next calamity, which is most likely going to be a consequence of climate change. And we'll have more on this topic, but now for a little music and mindfulness, our guest today has a few names. The great Ramdas called him Krishna, but he's also known as East Forest. East Forest is a musician, and this is actually helpful now because, as we all know, music does provide some great relief to people. It is therapy in many ways. Music alone is not enough for those of us that live lives in music. But music is definitely healing, and this is the kind of music that this composer, East Forest, is known for. He writes music to help people find paths towards self-realization, towards peace, towards calmness, and it seems to have an effect on people. So it's incandescent to speak with, and I'm delighted to welcome East Forest. So 
on the line with me, I don't know what you would call this because it's not the phone. Um, I guess he's on a laptop remotely. Is East Forest, very famous musician and meditation master. Um, oh. <laughs> welcome to the Wolf in Tune podcast. Thanks, man. Yeah, I'm excited to get to know you better. And seems like we were introduced by a dear brother, Justin Beretta. Yes. And anytime he says there's someone I should meet, he's usually right. So I'm, I'm excited. Well, I hope this doesn't break his winning streak. Um, <laughs> but Justin, yeah, he, he recommended you. He said, you're somebody that I should definitely talk to. And, uh, you know, Justin is a great musician. And very surprisingly, he's very articulate. And yeah, yeah. He's, he's a really sweet guy, too. I mean, just a good person. He and I are going to be um, kind of collaborating and crossing paths for the first time in June at Esalen, the Esalen Institute for like, they're doing a psychedelic integration week. But, you know, aside from that, he and I have actually never met yet in person. We've just talked a lot on the phone. We've done podcasts together and we're just sort of have mutual admiration for one another and have so many like, we, you know, we both did little projects with Ram Dass. So I think that was our first connection. Right. Justin is a member of the Glitch Mob, which is where I first heard of him. Mm -hmm. Okay. So tell me how you got started in the meditation space. I'm assuming you've been a musician pretty much your whole life. You were playing music. How did you make that transition into the specifically the meditation space? To be honest, the doorway in for me has been uh, therapeutic psychedelic work. And about 10, 11 years ago, it was 2008, where uh, I was preparing to do my first ayahuasca experience with some Peruvian shamans. And uh, I was scared. I was really scared. And I had heard from friends that having a meditation practice was going to be a smart thing to do. And so I did just that, you know, just sort of focusing on my breathing, a basic breathing practice. I was living in New York City at the time. And I just did that uh, once or twice a day to get used to it. And then I remember when I got into the actual ayahuasca ceremony, it was really, really strong. It was really powerful. And I, uh, that breathing practice was 100% my home base, and it was a lifesaver. And not only that, I had some very strong realizations in the experience of how like that ability to let go of everything and continue to return to this sort of central place, my breath in this case, was the doorway of enlightenment. Like that was it. And what an amazing gift that was. That was sort of like discovering something that is always there as opposed to something I have to earn. And so from there, yeah, I've just had a, my own self-inquiry of exploring the inner space but particularly how music can be a doorway for that, you know, like how you can use the, the, the practice of music, creating it, performing it as a meditative practice. Okay. So that's on the creative side. Can you talk a little bit more about how it's a meditative practice creating music? I think, you know, for me, like my, my partner is a yogi, so she is on the path of, of yoga. And, um, so I've sometimes looked at it through the lens that she speaks about it in, in that, like my yoga is music. And I, like, I just notice on a real simple level that if I'm not 
being creative, if I don't exercise that muscle of creativity. So that could look like um, sitting down at the piano and just trying to record, come up with a, a new little song and record it. And maybe that's a half hour, hour. Like there's a, there's something about that for me that is very meditative and it's tapping into that creative muscle that I think is, is one of the things that makes us unique as humans. And we all have it. And we're, when we're able to exercise that form of, of any creativity, like we come alive. You know, it, it's, it's a nourishing for us. And for me, it's, it's at least the type of music I'm making, like when I'm doing it, I'm trying to access those kind of parts of stillness in me and those parts of, it's a meditative practice because it's not about my thinking mind. It's about something larger than that. And I've, I've just learned over the years the hard way that if I don't do that, if I don't stay on top of some form of creativity, I can find it in other ways, by the way, but um, the rest of the whole ship of my life kind of falls apart. Does that make sense? Total sense. I mean, the act of creating music involves a lot of processes that are similar in meditation, like concentration, for instance. Yeah. Focusing all your attention in one direction, which is the music, and then losing yourself. It's not about you, it's about the music you're creating. Yes, um, yes. I'm trying to, I mean, at best, something larger is coming through and whatever that, you know, the stuff that comes through, where does that come from? I don't know. But I do feel like I'm responsible for putting in the time and the discipline to allow it to come through. And that's sort of like the equivalent of sitting on the mat. And just like with sitting on a cushion and meditating in traditional form, I think you often find its effects when you don't do it, right? Like you, you say, like, okay, I'm... Right. I notice when I don't meditate, I'm edgy or something versus right. like when I notice I meditate, I don't know, is it working? But it's like, oh, I see. Yeah, it's it's doing something. <laughs> it's helping me. I find the same thing with music. And so I've kind of learned that it's, it's it, like, as you're saying, it's tapping into a similar part of my mind, my unconscious to my heart too. Like it's, it feels, you know, and I, I tell this to people a lot that People, we, we've gotten to this weird era where we pay other people to sing for us and things like this. And people say like, well, I, I don't sing or I'm not creative. And I'm like, well, you, you are though. And like, you, you can sing, right? Mm -hmm. And right. we all have these abilities. You, any of us could sit down and, and, and free write, you know? Right. Or when you, even a good conversation invo involves a kind of creativity or you know, how actively you listen to someone. There's all these different manifestations it can take. And- Cutting yourself off from that is cutting yourself off from one of the pillars of what it means to be a human being. And I think why we're here, you know, that in a sense of humor. Right. Yeah. It makes us unique. Yeah. And I think you really hit on something when you talk about the universality of creativity. You know, I think that, of course, we all know that everything ends and begins with consciousness. Everything that happens in your life is an appearance in your consciousness. But I think consciousness is inherently creative. When you're connected mm -hmm. to your consciousness without thought or feelings just clouding things up, it's intrinsically creative. Consciousness creates phenomenon. And everyone right. has that creativity. So I think you've really hit on something there when you say everyone can sing, everyone has this. But uh, when you talk about when you're creating music, because you're aware of these um, connections to stillness, for instance, 
does that affect the composition itself, the way the music comes out? Yes. I, I, I actually think conversely, I'm actually trying to cultivate stillness with the music. So it's sort of a reverse direction. And that's just because of the predilection of what I like in music. Like East Forest music is very much about pushing you into the inner space. And that's just because I, I like that. I like music that's emotional and, and awakens in me certain emotions that are like, that feels infinite. You know, that feels like you're in that soul space. It feels like you're just fully alive. Uh, that's the kind of music I like. And that's what I like about music is that it can tap into that kind of stuff. Now, that's not to say all the other stylistic forms of music are, aren't better or worse. Uh, they're all awesome and they're all different flavors of sort of the same thing, but that's just what I like to go to. So for me, it's kind of a, a direct path. I'm aiming right for that, the stillness. So do you continue to practice? You talked about um, the breath as an anchor of concentration, of meditation. Do you still practice that kind of meditation? Yeah, my sitting like sitting practice uh, has fallen off a bit. I've been through a lot of moves lately, and I've noticed like when I tour, anytime you travel, you know, a lot of these sort of things start to go by the wayside. So I tried to um, really my goal as of late has been for not to demarcate between like this is meditation and this is not meditation. Like I wanted my entire wakingness to be as med to be as a when I say meditative, I want to say aware, you know, like awake, alive, right, right. not asleep, conscious right. in a sense, like right. the witness in me is awake. That is what I want to cultivate all the time. Now, do I do that? Of course not. It's a falling in and a falling out, but that's obviously the point. Even when I sit, it's just more like, uh, it's a more zeroed in process of seeing when I'm, when I'm there and when I'm not, and I'm just seeing it sort of in technicolor in a sense. Um, there's a meditation teacher named Lauren Roche that I came across and got to meet. I had him on my podcast uh, last year, and he talks about this, and it really spoke to me about how sort of the hidden forms of meditation in our walking life and not discarding them. And, you know, just even when you're washing the dishes, you can, you know, I have these moments where I can just take a breath and I can reach the same place I reached in that ayahuasca ceremony of quote unquote enlightenment. And it's, it's, it's all these micro gifts of realizing that it's just below the surface. I like to say that it's no further away than your next breath. And that to me, I feel like that's the point because I don't want to just meditate on a cushion and then I go back to life. It's like, well, I want my life to be the meditation. You know, I want my life to feel all completely integrated. Like the walk is the same thing. It's not just when I say like, now I'm doing this particular practice, but I recognize that there's a part of me that's my own resistance, saying like not sitting. Right. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> right. <laughs> so I'm not totally blind to like I'm trying beautiful. to have my cake and eat it too. That's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what you're talking about is meditation and action or mindfulness, which we aspire to uh, all during the day, which is the beauty of mindfulness over just pure concentration. Um. But it's great that you're recognizing that you need both. Kendrick Lamar calls it a reboot, a restart. He says it's a restart every time he sits down and meditates. Um, and, and, and the way I look at it is you're a musician, you practice your instrument, you have the solitary time, the intimate time between you and your instrument. 
and then you go out and perform for the world. You go on the world stage, right? And you perform what you've been rehearsing, what you've been practicing. So meditation, formal meditation is that practice, it's that rehearsing. And then we go out and, and we live our lives and we try to put it into practice, what we've been rehearsing, you know, we perform it. Yeah, that's a great, it's, and I think yoga is another analogy. I'm no, I'm no big yogi, but there's all these different kinds of yogi, you know, bhakti yoga, karma yoga, uh, and they're all different pathways, you know, but it's, again, it's, it's all about this incarnation we find ourselves in and what do we do with it? <laughs> you know, how much grace can we bring to it? Right. I, th I think what meditation does, it's such a buzzy word these days that it's kind of getting a bit loaded and bastardized, but right. If we just try to break it down, if anything, there's so much information sickness and so much happening more and more and more every day. Uh, we need time where we just listen. Right. That's it. That's it. And just say, I'm just going to do one thing. <laughs> That's it. I'm mean, just doing one thing is, is a big deal. Uh, given how we really don't do that much these days. And I think if you look at it that way, like how much concentration or focus can you bring to an activity? Meditation is just a very clean, simple way of doing that. And it seems to be like it helps out, you know, all sorts of manner of your being. Yeah. Yeah, I like, I like yeah. to just think about how it can bleed into our lives. So you, you are very busy performing music. And how did that start? I mean where you sort of got this reputation, people call on you to perform. How did you get your, you know, your mojo started? It's funny. It sounds like there we've, I've arrived some destination. It doesn't feel that way. But you know, I can say that looking backwards, there's absolutely been, you know, kinds of signposts or milestones that uh, helped lead to the next one. And it's been a long journey. I mean, it began making other kinds of music, but the East Forest Project began when I had around that same time of that ayahuasca ceremony, I, I was just having a lot of personal awakenings and realizations and transformations in my personal life about priorities and uh, what I wanted to do. And I started to make music to be used in the psychedelic space very intentionally, but particularly with uh, mushrooms, with psilocybin. And there didn't exist anything like that 10 years ago. And that's why I made it because I wanted to use it as a tool, the music, to really get as far as I could to the center, in a sense. So I just started doing my own study, some of that being studying sound healing science, like what's out there, what we know about and training the brain and so forth. Right. And then the rest of it was more anecdotal by experiencing ceremonies that are still led in an indigenous way, the same way they've done it for thousands of years, be that a Lakota sweat lodge to uh, Amazonian ayahuasca to uh, Huachume, San Pedro, and so forth. And just learning by that and, and experiencing it and, and paying attention to how they're using music, which they all do. They all use music as a central form of the ceremony. And I, I, I created a record and this experience with the record was really, really transformative for me personally. And then a friend of mine um, was also getting really into the same album and he encouraged me to lead some ceremonies, some psilocybin ceremonies. And I was reticent, but he started just organizing them. He's that kind of guy, like a producer. And so he just started getting people together and 
just organized everything and I would play and I was just trying to figure out how do I play for four or five, six hours by myself to lead these folks through it with just using music. And so I started looping and I started trying to bring in the things I'd learned from these other ceremonies and the the sciences I'd learned about what will work and what won't work. Uh, nature field recordings I'd recorded. And I just started weaving it all together. And for four or five years, that's all I was doing. I was just doing these sort of private circles. And then I just thought, I don't know, I just kind of got a hit, like maybe this would benefit more than just these private circles if I made it a little more public. But, you know, to be honest, I didn't think anyone could digest it because it was, it was ambient and long form, uh, pretty esoteric, metaphysical. And so I tried to package it into ways that sort of spoke the language of like, this is an album and maybe I could try to make the songs a little bit shorter. And some of them weren't even songs. It's very improvisational based, sort of soundscapes. But I, I did that. And, uh, the first community that started to pick up on it was the yoga community. And in 2014 or 15, I think the, there was a, some festivals called the Wanderlust Festivals that were all over the country. And they, they hired me to come play for like yoga classes. And so I went out and did a whole summer of all these festivals. And I got to meet a lot of people. And through that, I started to build an audience. And um, that allowed me to get booked at other places and start to play more and more. And fast forward through all that, you know, I was 20 releases later, it's really grown creatively into a lot of different forms, whether, you know, something that's just stripped down with piano or with strings or with, you know, electronics or with drums and bass. Uh, Creatively, it feels a lot more freeing now, but it's always been swimming around that same center of the mystery of how can music take us inside. And I want it to be a doorway for people of all shapes and sizes to say like, look, you don't have to know anything about anything that's the great thing about music. Like you could have a PhD in musicology versus, you know, nothing, but each of these two people will respond emotionally in the same way. It's, it's built in to our, our DNA. It's epigenetically, we have a response to certain chord changes. And so I want to make music that can, can build bridges to the people who aren't the quote unquote choir and who are looking for a non-denominational, non-religious way into their intuitive parts of their mind, into their hearts, into their souls. Uh, and that's, that's what I want to do. And that's what I was looking for, you know, way back when this started. Can you be more specific about how you use music to guide people in a psychedelic ceremony or, you know, because there are composers, very well-known composers, we're talking about John Cage or Pauline Oliveros, or the uh, Vondelweiser composers that uh, deliberately use music as nonverbal guided meditations because they want you to concentrate on the sound and then how the sound interplays with silence. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, we know those examples are quite famous. And ultimately, the idea is that music is a bridge and then it calms you down, it gets you to concentrate and focus and takes you to a place where you're beyond yourself, but then the music stops and you are listening to silence and then beyond sound and silence. But in your case, could you help us understand what that means uh, when you create music that's guiding people 
in a meditative way or a psychedelic way? Well, I will say that a lot of it is intuitive. It's just sort of my own creative arti artistry. Um, I, I released a record last year called Music for Mushrooms, a soundtrack for the psychedelic practitioner. And it's a five-hour record that really is the culmination of all of this. Uh, I'd released stuff before that were in that same zone, but this was the first that was very explicitly in the title. And not only that, was very explicitly a tool. And I think to answer your question, I'll just, you know, the way it was rec re recorded was in a ceremony, meaning with people doing a journey. It's live, it's improvised, and it's just recorded. And then afterwards, I just sort of um, mixed it as best I could. It's just a stereo track. So I kind of mastered it. So the, there are things I'm doing musically. I don't know if that's what you're interested in, but the fact that it's improvised is, is showing you that what's more important to me is that I'm in a space where I feel like, as we said at the beginning, that something larger can kind of speak through. Okay. Yeah, I'm making, I'm making decisions about like tension and release and instrumentation and the quality of this song or that song. Uh, the length of it, you know, if there's a beat or a pulse or not, and how that might be helping calm them down by entraining their brain, things like that. But at the end of the day, I'm trying to be in, I'm trying to like build my skills so that like any good performance, you can step into it. And when you're improvising, you know, you, you, you need to be inspired. So I'm hoping that I'm literally being inspired by whatever's happening in that ceremony, the energy of the space the, and if you want to speak esoterically, like the medicine itself, it's that's beyond me. I, I couldn't play any of that music on that record without listening to the record and reverse engineering it and learning the trying to figure out how to play it again. Cause I don't, I just played it once, you know, it just was birthed in the moment. It's kind of hard to describe how that process works. Um, in some ways, the constituent parts that make it up aren't really the point. It's sort of like, there's a, a Keith Jarrett is an artist that I really admire right. and I really admire how he does those long form piano right. improvisations. And that's, that was a big inspiration for me, like that, that as a style of performance and the idea of being to get into a particular zone and that's the goal. Uh, and then what's the kind of music manifests out of that. And the idea that it's improvisational in nature to me seems really, really interesting. Yeah. Whereas you know, the Ram Dass record I did also last year was a studio record and you have other musicians and you play this, you play that, you go to this other studio and you tweak this and so forth. Very, very, very different process, but hopefully speaking to a similar feeling. Yeah, it's interesting. You seem to be coming back to this theme of you're playing an instrument, but you yourself are an instrument of something bigger than yourself. You keep referring to yeah. you know, something larger than yourself is expressing itself through you, whether it's strictly in composing or you're talking about improvisation. That's pretty universal, even though people may not be aware of it. But I think in creativity, uh, at least subconsciously, we all know that we're instruments of something bigger than ourselves. You just have a m more conscious connection to that more structured and, and more aware, which I find very interesting. Now, you mentioned Ram Dass. Um, how did you meet Ram Dass? I, I, I had the idea of doing it. I mean, there's a funny story and sort of how it happened. Um, 
I, I was I was promoting a record and I hired a PR firm and like most PR firms, it was super disappointing. You know, <laughs> they weren't getting much for me, and they got mm-hmm. me one podcast, and I was like, I remember like deriding them because I was thinking like, oh wow, big big get, you know, and the podcast was on the Be Here Now network, Ramdas's network, and it's right. Raghu Marcus's podcast. And the reason right. I was kind of like giving him shit was because. Uh, it was his brother, like it's Raghu's brother. I'm like, well, of course he's going to say yes, but I'm glad you got it. I actually was a fan of the podcast, but anyway, I do the podcast. And through that, I got to know Raghu and Raghu's the executive director of the whole thing. And then I had this idea and a little while later, I just pitched it to him. And I said, this is why I think I'm the right guy to do it. And I can bring in some other musicians and kind of help orchestrate the whole thing. And thank God Raghu said yes. Uh-huh. And then, of course, you know, looking back on this whole thing, you know, I mean, it was this huge process and transformative for my life. And Ram, I met the me Ramdas, and he gave me the name Krishna, and then I made the record, and then Ramdas dies, and it's like this unbelievable journey that I still feel like I'm in the middle of. And I look back, and I'm like, you know, none of this would have happened if I hadn't have got that podcast. And that was the one thing that I was complaining about. <laughs> yeah. You know, it yeah. just goes to show you that like, you never know. You yep. never know like yep. how these things in your life are all connected. And yep. if you if you step in with the viewpoint of like what if, what does it feel like to think that everything is in this web of connectivity? How does that change how you feel? How does that change, you know, your stress level in a sense? And to me at least that feels good. It makes me give myself a little more slack about maybe what's happening right now. Right. And and what's yet to come and there's a sense of feeling like, well, Perhaps there is a some sort of guidance to all of this, right. and there's certainly meaning, and I need to just like follow the signs a bit more, trust right. a bit more in that right. way. So that's how it, that's how it actually happened. Um, but the bigger reason why it happened, I don't know yet. But it was a complete honor, and it's an amazing, amazing process to get some time with him to to get to ask him questions and record it and put it to music. Yeah, did you did you meet Krishna Das? Yeah, he's on the record. And right, he's on the record. Yeah. So did uh, Ram Das give Krishna Das his name too? No. So Ram Das and Krishna Das, as far as I know, got their names from Neem Karoli Baba, the Maharaji. They were both there at the same time. So they're they're brothers that go back, you know, the early seventies to that initial trips to India when all those folks were just meeting Ma- the Maharaji. And, you know, that's what kind of started this whole thing. Right. It just seems that, you know, there's some commonality there in the names Krishna and Das. Yeah, that's a funny story, too. I've told it before, but it's quick. Like, when I was there recording, I was there for a week, and I was hanging out with uh, this guy named Vishnu Das. And he got, he's a friend of Ram Das's, younger guy. And he said, I said, he got his name from Ram Das. And he said, you know, you can ask for a spiritual name. I said, really? You just, you just, you can ask? He says, if you want. I said, okay. Uh, I'll keep that in mind. So when we finished the recording, I was wrapping up and cleaning up my cables. And I kind of thought to myself, like, this might be it if I want to ask. Like, I'm not going to get much alone time with him. And right. I don't even know if I'll see him again and all this sort of stuff. And so I kneeled down to ask him and I was really nervous. And of course, I was very indirect about it. I gave it all sorts of preconditions and like, you know, I've heard 
you can give spiritual names, but you don't have to. But if you think it'd be, it's okay, if maybe you'd like to give me a name, but not that I need one, but it'd be fine if you thought about it. And but maybe later. So I was bumbling and rambling and I finished and then he's just looking at me and he's just sort of nodding. And I wasn't even sure he understood me. <laughs> yeah. He didn't say anything. Yeah. And so I kind of just got up and was like, okay, I'm going to let that go. And I went back to packing up. And he was just staring out off onto the ocean and doing his beads, very meditative. And I assumed he had just moved on and he was actually literally in a different space and he was just in on the next thing. And then about five, 10 minutes passed and he didn't say anything. And then finally he said, Krishna, and I didn't get it. Mm -hmm. I, there was some, someone was playing music down the hall and I said, are you talking about the song down the hall? And he says again, Krishna, I still didn't get it. And then my partner, Radha, well, Marissa, she said, that's your name. And then I started realizing that was my name and I was deeply humbled. And I was also nervous because, you know, like you said, I know Krishna Das. And I said, well, is it, is it just Krishna or is there like a thing on it, like a Das or a Vayu? Or I said, is it like Cher? Is it Do like a middle name? Yeah. Just one name? And he says it third time, Krishna. <laughs> Uh -huh. And then we all started laughing and crying. And then he gave my partner, Marissa, her name, Radha. And then, you know, what's beautiful about that man is that with, with one word, one word, mm -hmm. when people call me that now, it's, it's, um, it's sort of like a call to arms spiritually. You know, internally, it, it sort of rewires things for me. It's sort of like, what's the best way I can approach this moment that's new, that doesn't have the baggage of my, my past? Oh. And for the other person, they don't see it that way. They're just saying your name. But for me, it's like, it's this beautiful mantra in a sense. Um, yeah, I think it would have been uh, perhaps a little bit more mind-blowing if he named you Harry. <laughs> I mean, wait. Hari Krishna. Yeah, <laughs> Harry. Meet Krishna Das Harry. Meet Krishna. Um, <laughs> yeah, George. Yeah. yeah. It's, you know, I, I can, I can, I feel your pain when you're asking me, is that the only name? Is it like Madonna or is? I, I just didn't want to have the wrong thing. And then for 20 years, you know, later on, you're like, oh, no, 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 no. It's such and such. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I have like. <laughs> By the way, Krishna, wrong all this time. Krishna Das is also a, a phenomenal musician. Yeah, he's, he's a great guy. He's the real deal. Um, yeah. It's been great to get to know him a little bit. I got to go back for some of the Ramdas retreats. Um, I'm playing at the one in, in Ojai, but they have these ones in Maui. And uh, it, it was a real treat. I dragged him up on stage once and got him to sing his part live of the I Am Loving Awareness song. And it was special to look over and I'm like, that's Krishna Das singing. <laughs> it's cool. Nice. So obviously your music touches a lot of people. And I think when you talked about yoga, because yoga is pretty widespread, and um, obviously you're connecting with that huge community. You know, I saw, I saw on your Instagram, you've got 19,000 followers, which is very impressive. So obviously your music is touching a lot of people. In your music, do you use rhythms from India at all? Uh, not intentionally. I mean, sometimes, yes, I guess. But I don't know a whole lot about like ragas and all the traditional forms, but I've, I learned bits here and there, but I, I try to approach the music from my own background, which is very Western. You know, I grew up listening to the radio and 
some of the early bands I was doing was really like indie piano pop and stuff. And I really like a lot of modern popular music. And I like music that's just crafted really well, like the art of songwriting. And I think I tried to bring some of those that skill set into the East Forest music where it's still experimental and long form, but there's also hooks at times. And there's 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 some structure to kind of keep you engaged and take you on a journey and sort of a attention and release. And that's all stuff I've just pulled from my own experience and, and what I like in just good songs, you know. Yeah, you know how to write a song that uh, that works, yeah, structurally and um, production wise. Well, I love to produce for other artists because it gives me a chance to um, try those other things and like stretch out into their world and try to think about like, okay, what's their voice? But you're you're taking care of like the production side of it, and I love that, and I love I love doing. It. I mean, I got to do some of that recently with. We did some reworks for the Ramdas record. And so I think about there are eight of them. There's seven different artists. And some of them, you know, like Hammock or the album Leaf, they just they did their own thing and they just turned in what they were done with, which is great. And then other artists like Laraji or uh, Nick Mulvey, it was much more a conversation with them where I'm helping them produce their vision of what they want the track to be. And then I mix it for them and they're giving me notes and so forth. And that's fun. I love that. You know, I kind of get out of my own zone and right. and put the hat of somebody else's creativity on. So I saw that you license your music. Is that true? Do you license like to sync for TV, film, yeah. that kind of stuff? What kind yeah. of production uses your kind of music? I think all sorts of stuff. Um, I mean, my music's largely instrumental. So a lot of people say it has sort of a cinematic flair. Uh, or film scorey type vibe. So I don't know. I mean, I, yeah, I have some tracks that are picked up more often than others, obviously. And those are the ones that maybe are a little more like electronic or buoyant or, right. I don't know, not as long form and ambient for sure. I've noticed that. Okay. <laughs> so they have a beat, uh, like, uh, yeah, like there's a song I have called 10 laws. 10 that, laws. Yeah. The yeah. instrumental version of that's quite popular to yeah. be licensed and it's, yeah fairly spacious and tight, you know? Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Explain explain 10 Laws, because that's really interesting. Could you talk more about that? Yeah, that was, it's funny, because that was the very, very first song I wrote for the whole project, and it's still the most popular song. And But where did you get the idea of, the, you got the idea of 10 Laws from some somebody, some... Well, it's a field recording, yeah. Yeah, so I was, all the field recordings and samples are just things I've recorded. They're all original recordings. And I was hanging out with a friend of mine. Well, I just met him that night, actually. This is 10 years ago. His name's uh, VCJ or Vernon Court Johnson. He's a famous skateboard artist, actually. He does all the artwork for Pal Peralta skateboards. And he's an older guy who lives in the Santa Barbara Hills. And a friend of mine just took me over there. And, and, and Court's like, he's become a real elder to me, but he's a mystic. You know, he, he says he had a, like a, Satori moment in a Chinese restaurant in the eighties. <laughs> and ever since then, it's just, he's kind of been in a dreamscape. So he, you know, he can, he does these readings for people and you go over and it's just three or four hours where he's just reading everything about your past lives and, you know, your, your body and your energy. And he's, he chain smokes this clove tobacco and uh, chain drinks, this cowboy coffee and does this muscle testing. I mean, he's a unique cat. He's just got a lot of things figured out for himself. And 
he has many lists and limericks in this hundred room psychology he's developed. And I, I was, had a field recorder on the table when we, we were talking or he was talking and he said it once. It was just one of the many things he said. It was like these, this hunter gatherers code of 10, his 10 laws that he lives by that if he has those covered, the rest of his life is kind of gravy. And he described them like a set of stars that keeps his ship sailing straight. Sort of like, if I, you know, if I do those, everything else is cool. And uh, I was, I brought it back to my, my apartment in Brooklyn at the time. And I was just making this new music by myself, just looking for music that kind of had a certain feeling of introspection. And I, I remembered I had that recording and I thought, oh, I don't know, that could be fun. And I just kind of pulled up the recording of that long conversation to start dropping the mouse around at different points. And I hit that 10 laws thing. And I was like, wow, that's interesting. I wonder if I could chop that up. And I did. And I didn't know if it even have the, enough fidelity or anything. And it just barely did. And I remember dropping it in the song and how it just kind of fit within the bars of the music. And it just clicked, man. It's just like, wow, this is cool. <laughs> it's like, I don't know what this is. This is like sort of spoken word meets down tempo, acoustic electro music, but I like it. Like it's got a nice, like soulful vibe. And I just left it at that. And it's just something that's really spoken to people. Maybe there's something about the hunter gatherers code speaks to our time of today as some kind of anecdote. Yeah. It's a really nice story. It's uh, charming. Yeah, he's a hidden mystic. And really, that song existing and being successful directly led to me thinking I should work with the Ram Dass and work with spoken word in that way and put it to music. Because I was like, well, people enjoy it, apparently. And I did it a few more times in small ways since then. And so if I hadn't have done that and hadn't have met him, I'm not sure that all this other stuff would have happened. Right. So you're doing something... Uh, with the something to do with science and non-duality? That's a, a group, yeah, Science and Non-Duality is like a conference that uh, I was performing at last year that they do in San Jose, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I am interested in that intersection of sort of technology and science and analog nature slash the creative and how these things come together, kind of building bridges between those two things. So I, I don't shy away from experimenting with different forms of technology in music that can potentially take us deeper. And uh, Mikey Siegel, has uh, he's part of Consciousness Hacking. That's a group in San Francisco. We did some stuff with his group flow exercises, and I did another thing with, uh, with Google where they're doing some, a neuroaesthetics project where they're exploring how the aesthetics of a space affects our neurology and our body and then... Uh, analyzing it. So, of course, music's part of that. So what did you and do exactly? With the for them, I did the music. Oh, consciousness hacking? Right, and both, and Google, both, yeah. Well, they're very different projects. The, the Google one was they, they created three rooms. So it was a physical structure that they took to the Salon Festival in Italy. And in each one was designed very specifically and differently. So even the scents in the room and the music in the room, and then you would wear a biofeedback style sensor they developed, kind of like a fancy Fitbit, and then you'd just be in the space. And uh, 
Ivy Ross was the person at Google who's kind of headed this up, and she's uh, the vice president of their hardware design. And then you just you'd come out, and they'd put the little thing that was on your body, there on your wrist, in a machine in this really beautiful interface. It would tell you sort of like what how your body responded, and maybe what kind of design might be best for you. So it's it a bit of an experiment in design in this newer field called neuroaesthetics. And then with consciousness hacking, um, we've done a few things, but Mikey has been experimenting with how he can use technology to create, a, he calls it a group flow, how you can like have more group connectivity to yourself and to others. And so he does all this stuff where like, you, know, you, you wire up people with, um, for heart rate, they measure their breathing, maybe their electro, um, like emotional response perhaps. And you can feed all this into a computer and then you give them ways of getting forms of biofeedback. Like everyone has this little light, like looks like a little mason jar with a colored light in it that can do any different color. And that represents, for instance, your heartbeat. So you're seeing a manifestation of your heartbeat. And then you can do things like your heartbeat then is on a subwoofer. It's like, oh, wow, that's my heart. But then you can hear your neighbor heart rate and then you can hand them your glass heart and switch and stuff where you can fuse the sounds together or you could do that with a group of 20 people with a central light and see if there's forms of like coherence with it, with different exercises. So I was experimenting with how the music affected this, live music, and I was also taking the data of their heart or their breathing and I would change it into different sounds like different kinds of frogs or um, nature sounds and weaving that into live music while we're all, they're sort of in a meditative state. Definitely was a guided meditation. Dustin DePerna was doing the meditation. And then we're just sort of experiencing um, if they felt more connected as a group and as individuals and how it all kind of mashed together. So that was fun. Well, that sounds amazing. That, that, that sounds like performance art. Yeah, it's Silicon Valley performance art. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Well, it's... it's you're converting your you're using heartbeats and making that into sound composition mhm mm uh, mm -hmm. and breathing and other forms of biofeedback yeah based on your emotional response essentially and did you enjoy that i mean what did you find that to be um yeah we've done it a couple times yeah i i love i mean look it was stressful because it was sort of a startup mentality we were uh, like they were writing code and we we're like trying things and we were flying by the seat of our pants to make it work but uh, i love that collaborative form of cross-pollinating different disciplines especially yeah. the technological because mikey's really interested in how can technology not create more separation as it typically is known to do, but right. do the opposite. Right. And it's a worthy endeavor. Um, I am sort of interested in how music can create connection to ourselves and others. So I think it was a natural thing to try. And uh, it's, it's a tall, it's a tall climb, you know, figuring out ways to make I mean, but you know, even this podcast itself is a form of technology that hopefully is creating more connection and interconnectedness through ideas and words that's using technology to do it, right? We're doing this remotely, as Good we point. said at the beginning. Yeah. Good so, point. I mean, it's all around us, man. It's a double-edged sword and it's a tool. 
I've always said you can take a hammer and you can build a house, but you can also hit someone over the head. It's like, this depends how you want to use it. So we're kind of in our infancy, I think, or maybe we're getting to be like four or five years old with the internet and figuring out what we want to do here as human beings. You know, this stuff is, it's conceptual. I mean, it's art that takes place in your mind. Along the same lines, I have a friend that's, they convert planetary orbits into frequencies. You've heard about this, the cosmic octave no. and planetary frequency. Sounds cool. Yeah, yeah. They take the, uh, it's mathematically, they take the time it takes a planet to revolve and they convert that into different frequencies. And then you have to raise it up several octaves because you can't really hear it because it's too low. Stuff like that. It's, yeah. It's, you know, like Michael Jackson's album, Off the Wall. So it's, a, it's about art coming off the wall and it's all about, your perception it's the process of hearing that's the art not necessarily the object which is the music but it's the fact that you're hearing that's really where the art takes place and this that, that sounds yeah. like what the consciousness hacking is doing i mean you have to know put it put you have to in your consciousness put all these elements together of the frog and the heartbeat and the sound and the subwoofer and the you know it's all taking place in your mind yeah, and sometimes maybe it's too much data and input, um, but <laughs> it's a cool experiment, you know? I think it's cool to try and just try different things. Well, is there anything else that you want to talk about? You know, man, I just I just love getting into these conversations about how particularly sound and music can dive into the heart and how meditation is a part of that. And it's an endless conversation. And in some ways... There's not a lot to talk about because, you know, especially when you're talking about music, it's like, well, just listen to the music, <laughs> just yeah. try it out. But um, I appreciate that you're having these sorts of conversations and it's cultivating new ideas about really a new kind of future and a new kind of beingness that is being called of us, in my opinion. So I think it's important. Yeah, well, I heard you in a podcast and I think this is with Aubrey Marcus. Mm -hmm. And you said something about, both of you guys were saying something about how people don't look each other in the eye enough. Does this ring a bell to you? Well, I feel that's true. I mean, I know when I was in New York, that was definitely true. It was dangerous to look people in the eyes. <laughs> but it's true. It's very true, man. Because look, it's yeah. so intimate. It's very vulnerable. It's like you look someone in the eyes. Uh, was Einstein that said you see their soul? You do. And so it, it takes a level of vulnerability to say, uh, I'm willing to go there. But I, boy, do people love to be witnessed. That's a real gift you can give them. So is there something you want to um, tell people about? Is there something um, uh, on the horizon you want people to know about? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a lot of different things that I do in the East Forest ecosystem. But the intention behind it is that there's different kinds of doorways to meet different kinds of people where they're at. So some of that is obviously recorded music. That's, you can find it wherever you listen to music. And some of that though, is like, um, like this podcast, uh, I do my own podcast as a way of engaging in ideas and words, but hopefully dancing around the same mystery. And I do retreats, uh, and those are all on my website, which is eastforest.org. Good. 
And the retreats are a way if you want to go even deeper, you know, in person. And they're kind of wilderness and wellness retreats that obviously involve a lot of music, but it's all inquiries into the self. And hopefully by doing that, we are creating a more selfless and in-service life as a way of figuring out how to do this crazy dance together, which we're in the middle of something pretty big. So I think we can use all the help we can get. And uh, I'm just I'm just doing my little dance. And it's always great to meet new people like you and other folks and, and learning learning how we connect. Yeah. It's been incandescent talking with you. Wonderful to connect with a fellow musician that's hoping to use music as a bridge to something bigger. And um, look forward to uh, speaking again. Ditto, man. Thanks, brother. All right. Take care. Well, I hope this episode puts you in a more peaceful frame of mind. You can find East Forest's music um, and he does some meditations and some live streaming. We're going to put links in the show notes. And if you like this podcast in general, please leave us a review, show us some love, a little bit of a rating, and uh, tell your friends to listen to us. You can follow or subscribe to us. We have a Facebook page called Wolf in Tune. We have an Instagram called Wolf in Tune and Twitter at Wolf in Tune. And I want to thank Lonnie Ronaldo and Michael Zumba and my co-producer, Hannah Bowers. And until next time, I hope you stay safe and remain healthy and upbeat and up in a higher octave and let's stay in tune.